0: please visit jcasnetwork.org.
1: Welcome to Daily Daft Differently. I'm David Greenstein. We're studying Ketubot, Daf Kuf Yud, Amud Aleph, Amud Bet, age 110, A and B. Most of uh, side A of this page deals with situations in which two people confront each other and they have competing claims against one another. And the Gemara explores various ways in which we can figure out how to either balance the claims out or try to figure out when one claim should be canceled or dismissed in the face of another claim. If we take the second mission on the page first, we have an example of two people each claiming that the other has taken out a loan. Each one claims that they have lent money to the other and they have the documents to prove it. In such a case, we say that in general, we should let the two claims as much as possible cancel each other out. What we need to note here is that in general, all of the sages agree that when it is a wash between the two sides, when there's absolutely no benefit to be gained by having the two litigants force the other side to pay them the loan money that they owe. When there is no extra benefit to be derived from either side, we tell both sides to simply go home and forget about it. We don't engage in a kind of a pursuit of pure justice where each side will say, well, if you owe me the money, I insist that you own up to it, that you stand up for your responsibility, and I insist that you pay me. What we tell each person is is that you don't have the right to force somebody to pay you, you have the right not to lose your money. And if the two loans end up canceling each other out, then we simply tell each person to be happy and go home. When we look at the first Mishnah, we see a slightly different situation. Here, there is a person who claims that He gave a loan to his friend, and the friend has a document which shows that he bought a field from that same person. And now he claims that his bill of sale, which is subsequent to the date of the loan, proves that the loan was either paid or never happened. Because he says, according to Admon, how could you possibly have sold me the field and taken money for a field when I owed you money already because of the loan? Why didn't you just simply take my money as payment for the loan? And the sages dismiss Admon's argument by saying, no, he is a pikeach; he's a shrewd man. That term has already appeared in previous Mishnayot and acknowledges the fact that in all of these dealings, you really have to be on your toes to be able to make the best case that you can. And what they say is, is that the person who sold the field was shrewd in making sure that he could get his money back by making the man pay for the field. The lender gets the money and makes sure now that the borrower has collateral to pay the loan. And in fact, he intends to take back the same field that he, that he sold. And therefore, he will get his field back and he will have gotten the money that was paid ostensibly for the sale of the field. And that will satisfy his loan. The Talmud thinks that Admon's position makes a lot of sense. Admon says to the sages, nevertheless, if he was trying to protect his investment, trying to protect his loan, why didn't he tell the witnesses on the side? Why didn't he serve notice to them that he was doing this simply in order to create collateral for his loan? And the sages answer back, according to the way that the Talmud fills in their argument, that he is afraid to make such an announcement because, your friend has a friend, and that friend has a friend, and if I tell you, you will in confidence tell your friend, and your friend will in confidence tell somebody else, and the so-called secret of this notice will be public knowledge and get back to the person who's thinking of buying the field, and he will pull out of the deal. The commentators ask a question about this reconstruction or this embellishment of the argument between Admon and the rabbis. After all, this argument that Admon rejects here, that argument which Admon rejects, he seems to accept on the previous page, where Abaye says that everyone agrees that in the case where someone is challenging another person as being a thief who has stolen their field. And yet, nevertheless, he writes in a bill of sale that when he was acquiring some property, the abutting property belonged to this other person. And that property is exactly the property that he claims now really belongs to him. Abaye says everybody agrees that it would be inappropriate to ask the person to speak privately to the witnesses and tell them that he's doing this simply to protect himself from this violent person. So, does Admon agree with this concept or not? And the commentators offer different suggestions. One simple suggestion is that it depends who you're worried about. If you're worried about somebody who's a criminal and violent and perhaps could cause you physical harm, that's a much better reason to be afraid of leaking out your intentions than when you're just simply dealing with a uh, another business person who is trying to make a profit. But one commentator, the Pnei Hoshua, makes a startling suggestion. And he says that we might have to think that the Gemara on Kuftet Amudbet 109b is not talking about Admon's position at all. Abaye is actually offering a teaching that follows only after studying the discussion on our page. Once we know that the rabbis have a good argument against Admon, we follow the rabbi's opinion, we dismiss Admon, and then Abaye says we all now accept this theory that we have to worry about private communications going public, and therefore we don't demand such explicit clarifications. At the bottom of the page we begin a series of Mishnayot that take us into the final broad subject of our tractate, and this is the relationship between the Land of Israel and the Diaspora. It tells us that the Land of Israel is the preferred place for Jews to live, and it tells us that in a marital situation if a man decides that he wants to live in the land of Israel and move from outside of the land to Israel and his wife refuses, she's divorced and loses her ketubah. The Talmud also says that this applies to slaves. And we have an interesting difference of approach between Rashi and Maimonides about what slaves we're talking about. Rashi says that this means that should a slave owner of a Jewish slave, an Eved Ivri, a Hebrew slave, should the owner decide that he wants to move to the land of Israel, the Hebrew slave must follow his owner. He has no choice. Maimonides sees this in a much more radical way. He reads the Talmud as saying that it's not a Hebrew slave that we're talking about, but an Eved kenani, a slave who originally enters into the household of the Jew as a non-Jew. He is formally converted, but he's still is in a subsidiary position and is not considered fully obligated in all commandments. Nevertheless, he is obligated to live in the land of Israel. And so, an Eved Kenani, a Canaanite slave, is within his rights to demand that his master move, close up shop, and go to the land of Israel. And if the master refuses, the slave should be set free. This is part of a particular thread within Jewish tradition, that pushes for the liberation of slaves in all kinds of circumstances and through all kinds of pretexts, even though the institution was given legitimacy originally in the Torah. This is a pushback which allows for a rectification to some degree of the injustice of slavery itself. We will continue discussing broader issue of the place of the land of Israel